1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark and Mark here talking about all the latest news in Formula One, everything that's dropped since the season finale at Yaz Marina last weekend, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And we are now at the beginning of a very long, 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 long... Did I mention long (laughs) off-season? But it is kind of like that, uh, that feeling that you get... Sort of that. It's like starting the work week. This is like the Monday of the Formula One off season, compared to when you get to the the, the beginning of the Formula One season. That's got kind of that that Friday feel to it. But hey, we'll, we'll persevere. Are, are you hanging in there so far, Mark? Are you going to make it till March? Yeah, I, I am. I actually feel a little bit differently. Like I, I'm looking at this calendar, and we're
0: basically. Ninety three, ninety four days out from from Australia, and you know what? Given the fact that we have to pack in a condensed, compacted, compressed winter testing, like I, I have a feeling this is going to go by super, super, super fast. That said, I, I think emotionally, psychologically, it's probably going to be a pretty dark, grim winter for for all of us but mm. hopefully by the time we get to Australia you know what um the the rate of vaccination will have increased and i think people's spirits will have started to lift a little bit and maybe you know what Australia will kind of be that that mark that inflection point where fans are coming back into the stands and we're starting to get some of that atmosphere back and it could be a really entertaining season but yeah for me I like i look at this calendar and i'm almost panicked at how quickly this is going to turn around because the season ran so late this year and you know what we i think we probably want to enjoy this break for a couple of months because Next year, when we when we're covering 23 races, it's gonna be unlike any season we've ever seen before. Obviously, new re- races, double headers, triple headers, it's gonna be a crazy calendar.
1: Well, if you think about it, if we keep up with the schedule that we've been doing uh, this year with the weekly show and then the the Sunday night wrap up shows, that's forty six podcasts next year. <laughs> so, wow. Oh, sorry. That, well, that's well. Sorry, I, I I'm I'm not even counting that. Uh, that that's fifty two for fifty two weeks plus the twenty three races. I was just thinking uh, twenty three races in twenty three weeks, and then. You know, it's getting late here. Don't I understand what, what you I do realize There's not 23 weeks in a year. There's actually 52. But yeah, wow, that, uh, that, that's, there, there's a lot uh, coming down. But it's good, too, because the World Motorsport Council this week has actually approved the 23 race calendar for the 21 uh, season with the uh, April 25th date of, um, well, that was going to be the Vietnamese Grand Prix, but uh, that has been scratched, uh, sadly. I mean, that was going to go this year. Then it got canceled because of COVID and everything like that. So like I was saying, it, it's Thursday night, 9.30 here Pacific time on the west coast of uh, of North America. So by the time this episode drops, we're like almost exactly half a day behind the European news cycle. So what we're speculating on now is probably all going to get confirmed by the time <laughs> most of you are listening uh, to this. But uh, some of the speculation that, uh, that we were talking about or what we were speculating on before we hit uh, record here was just uh, some of the possible venues that uh, might slot in nicely. I mean, the one that's been mentioned uh, recently is uh, Portimao uh, that would come in, and then you'd have, uh, so you'd have, um, let's see, we'd have Australia, Bahrain, China, and then uh, from China, we would have gone to uh, Vietnam, to to, to Hanoi. Obviously, that's off, but then I was uh, thinking, uh, you know, well, I guess ultimately, Mark, like we were saying off here, it's going to come down who's going to, put up the most money and who's going Absolutely. to uh, w- want to pay the, uh, the, the the most for a hosting fee. But certainly, I mean, there are a lot of uh, contenders that were there and a lot of these uh, you know, if you want to call them temporary or fill-in venues that we saw races at this year did very, very good jobs. I mean, I really enjoyed Mugello. I really enjoyed uh, Portimao. Enjoyed Imola, the Nürburgring. But those are kind of like known quantities. But uh, Portimao is uh, one that, uh, that gets thrown around. And certainly if uh, you go and check out some of the social media from some of the uh, the F1 journos that uh, they're they're preparing for a busy Friday, and uh, we're we're just uh, waiting to see what the what the confirmation is going to be on that uh, that race number four in that twenty three race uh, calendar, which is cool too. Because when I heard that uh, that that uh, Vietnamese Grand Prix had fallen off, it wasn't going to happen. I was kind of wondering, hey, maybe this just uh, they're just going to leave it blank, and then we're going to have like like a four week mini break a, a month into the season. But glad that's not going to happen. I think. Uh I th- I, you know, what's funny. I had the exact same thought.
0: Like it's 22 race calendar is already pretty uh, aggressive. Like that's what we were expecting to see for 2020 prior to uh, COVID causing sheer Chaos. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I thought 22 was already a pretty aggressive race calendar. But I I guess the way to look at this is uh, until recently, there was still an expectation that Vietnam was going to join. And, you know, we could talk about that for probably an hour or two. And the fact that it, it fell apart for some very domestic political reasons. And as it turns out that the politician and the authorities that were really driving Uh, the impetus and the energy behind hosting a race uh, got pulled into some politically exposed scandals. And ultimately the race kind of fell apart, which is a shame because the infrastructure was in place Mm that the the track and the circuit was ready. It looked like it could be really fun to watch, uh, but ultimately didn't happen. So it kind of made sense that, Hey, do you really need that spot on the calendar? But I think, I think based on what we saw this year and the reduced revenues that Liberty and formula one and the FIA would have experienced as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, ultimately we talk a lot about the fact that formula, one really generates revenues in one of three spaces. One, it's hosting fees from tracks and race organizers. It is sponsorship, uh, both team and uh, kind of overarching umbrella sponsorships. And it's also TV money. And last year, despite the fact that they raced in a lot of places in Europe, they really weren't recovering anything in the terms of hosting fees for those races. Ultimately, those races were being staged so they could recover as much TV revenue as possible as they could from Sky and ESPN and their other broadcast partners. And ultimately that made sense because if I'm a if I'm a track or if I'm a race organizer, um, I'm not going to pay you, Mr. Formula One, anything to host a race because I can't recover that because I can't sell tickets to this event. So yeah. I think a lot of this is, hey, look, we need to recover as much as we can from, from last year and start banking some of that cash. And I, I think I think it's probably unclear at this point just when we'll start to see fans at the venues. I, I think we'll probably see in the early part of the season. We'll probably see reduced capacities, and we'll probably see something like. Obviously, the local health authorities will be a big part of this. But one of the really fantastic good news stories coming out of New Zealand and Australia right now is their COVID case count is effectively zero. And knock on wood, if that continues, it's possible that maybe they, you know what, they sell out the track and they have a hundred thousand people on race day, um, and then we'll probably see that that number gradually ramp up as the season progresses and more and more people have access to the vaccine and things like that but i would say that probably by the summer midsummer when you're part way through that european calendar i think we're going to see some b- pretty big audiences but yeah 23 race calendar it makes sense to me that they're going to be as aggressive as possible but the other thing to consider too is while spain is on the calendar for that may 9th weekend Um, that race isn't a lock because they still haven't agreed to a contract with the the race and the host organizers in that country. And it's also kind of funny because Spain wasn't supposed to be on the calendar last year and it kind of got a reprieve because of the COVID situation and they needed a track on the calendar. So it was kind of a surprise to me that it's back again this year. And they they seem to be these one year short term deals, but it's nice because I, I think it's good. But I think as well from a marketing perspective, if you're going to be bringing Alonso back, um, there could be a really compelling reason for the race organizers to shell out the 20 or 40 million euros to get the opportunity to host a race. So yeah, 23 races next year should be pretty darn exciting.
1: Absolutely. And just to, to follow up on that thought for uh, for Barcelona, the the one thing that they're also doing is that they're reworking turn 10. So I mean, would they really go through all that design and engineering and construction work? for you know if, if you're not going to have a big event like a formula 1 oh, race yeah. so that that's one thing but i was also thinking too that it's interesting now that the the world motorsport council has ratified and uh, and, and finalized and approved this uh, 23 race calendar i was thinking you know, every year this is kind of creeped up. They've added a race here and there over the past uh, several years, and they keep saying that they want to get it up to twenty-five, which is basically bang yeah. on half the year. You're racing every other uh, weekend uh, all year long. I mean, of course, you're gonna have more compressed uh, times because it go from like March till December, right? Uh, however, I, I think that now that we have uh, you know 23 races confirmed, I think it's going to be a real good test, uh, at least logistically. I mean, we'll, we'll just have to kind of put uh, the, the the hosting part and fans in the stands. That's a little bit. That's a separate side issue, just uh, based on the COVID thing. But just logistically speaking, how the, the the feedback that they're going to get from the teams and just the you know the infrastructure just to to, to host and 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 get these races going, just the, the strain that it's going to put on these uh, different organizations just to, to to host them. So that's going to be fascinating. Fascinating to watch. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting too. And we are also talking to. It, it's it's interesting also how you have uh, these. Uh, you know, you have you kind of hop back and forth in that beginning part of the season. You go to Australia, then you go to Bahrain, then you go to China, and then we're thinking we're probably looking at Portugal and then Spain, and then you have like a one quick flyaway weekend to uh, to Canada, which is counted in the European season. Then you're back after uh, Canada, after Montreal, you're going to Monaco, and then you know then you're really into the thick of the European season, and then that basically. Runs until the beginning of September because usually the, the summer break is bookended by Spa or sorry, Hungary on one side, and then you get Spa and Monza at the end of August, beginning of September, then it's off to Singapore and places like that uh, afterwards. But it's interesting because we were discussing the possibility of when could they we, or is there like any drive to reschedule Montreal? Because typically, what you have in the fall is after you have a couple of those races, like in the Far East, you have Singapore and whatnot, then you come back, you go to USA, you go to Mexico, then you go to Brazil, and you get, then then you also have, uh, you know, you do one jaunt over to Japan as well. You're kind of like jumping around a little bit. But whether or not they can maybe reschedule that. I, I guess uh, one of, uh, one of the things, things has to do, of course, with the, uh, you know, the track availability and whatnot. But Canada is kind of the funny one that's kind of sandwiched all by itself there, you know, at the beginning of the season when you have USA, Mexico, Brazil right at the end of the year. And uh, we we were talking about the possibility of maybe trying to find some sort of way to line it up. But then I was thinking about how when the, you know, you remember at the beginning of the year when COVID hit, it was just, okay, like Australia is cancelled. And then they're cancelling Bahrain. There was kind of like this rolling kind of like cancellations before they finally said, okay, everything's cancelled. And then we'll look at starting it. And so... Uh, Montreal was one of those races that was confirmed to be cancelled at, at at one point and they dis- did discuss about maybe trying to host it later on in the year and it was interesting because I, I don't remember the exact date but uh, it was something to do because Montreal can get pretty cold in the winter but they were saying I think it was about the middle of October was uh, they, they said was uh, if you get anything beyond that it, it just wouldn't be possible. More practical to host a Grand Prix at that time of year, so I guess that that is a bit of a uh, you know, a bit of a constraint there, because usually you, you it's always interesting because you have. Uh, the the Mexican Grand Prix always falls pretty close to the end of uh, November. Sorry, end of October. It's always in and around Halloween, and USA is the week before. So who knows? Certainly, uh, lots of uh, lo- lots of cool things uh, coming up uh, w- with the calendar. They've also confirmed the uh, the, uh, the the host or what was it the uh, the the fees for next year as well the entry fees. So they've been uh, really really uh, busy. That, so that all the teams were required to pay five hundred fifty six five hundred nine dollars uh, before adding in their weighted totals before the, I love that, you know, I mean, there's obviously a reason that they decided on $556, $509. <laughs> and then, you know, then they have to add, uh, you know, there's there's uh, more fees on top of it, uh, basically uh, adding up all the the, the the points that you are awarded uh, or you win the constructors uh, every year. So Mercedes ends up paying uh, $6,677 per point, which uh, on the, you know, the, the face of it sounds pretty expensive, but uh, you think, that uh you know they more than recoup uh, their their money in formula 1 just from what they win and all the exposure and i'm sure that uh, that old saying win on sunday sell on monday is is very applicable to, a, to to mercedes i don't think there's any lack of customers buying those cars their road cars anyways yeah I absolutely agree, you know, and you made a really great point and and I should have
0: mentioned this myself, but when when we talk about the aspirations of liberty and we talk about the fact that we're going to have this uh, absurdly aggressive calendar of twenty three races this year, they're very open and transparent about the fact that their end destination is a twenty five race calendar to your point, and we would effectively be racing every other week and you know i I talked to some people. Um, last winter that are a little bit closer to Liberty and have a, a slightly better understanding of what they're modeling out in terms of their economics for the future of the sport. And, and the way that they they see this working is the calendar would basically be broken out. We do we see this a little bit so far, but the calendar would really be broken out into segments by geography. And rather than having these scattered flyaway fly races, you would have flyaway blocks. So mm-hmm. you know what? We have a North American block, so we're going to be in Montreal. We're going to be in Miami. We're going to be in Austin. We're going to be in Mexico city. And then ultimately we're going to be in, in Brazil. So you basically carve the planet up into these blocks. And then you would have a, a middle Eastern block and you would have an Asian block and you'd have the European calendar. Because I, I think that logistically I think it would be too much to expect a 25 race calendar to be as scattered as it is today. And it's it's reasonably well segmented today, but I think they would need to do more and make most, no mistake about it. Race 24 is is obviously going to be Miami. Liberty has done everything in their power to make that happen. And they obviously had some really wild aspirations for a downtown track on the causeway initially. And uh, locals, owner associations, and the neighboring condo buildings were going to have none of that. So ultimately the race was, uh, from a design perspective, moved out to the suburbs, to Miami Gardens, and to be raced around the facility where the Miami Dolphins play. But make no mistake, race number four will be in the United States. And race number 25, if Liberty has their way, will be in the western Seaboard of the United States, which could conceivably be good for us because yeah, it puts absolutely. us a, a, a race a little bit closer at hand. But yeah, race twenty-four, no questions asked, will be Miami once they can make that logistically happen. But that also just reinforces how valuable having that kind of North American segment in the calendar would be. But I think uh, I think I bored most of our
1: listeners with my wild speculations <laughs> and rants about a conceivable calendar in the future. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention uh, Miami though, uh, just to, before we go into the break here, Mark, because I was thinking about when you brought up uh, you were talking about Hanoi just a little. Uh, A little earlier in the show, and I was thinking, uh, well, how disappointing that is to to, to lose that race. But that was kind of one of those races that's kind of talked about almost in parallel with the Grand Prix in Miami, and how that's really encountered a lot of uh, the different hurdles uh, along the way. And not that I have a, a really you know vast or deep knowledge of civic issues in Miami but just based on the issue that uh, uh, David Beckham has had with his major league soccer franchise this is a story I covered at length on my other podcast which we started way back in 2013 that was one of the first things we talked about when we started that show was uh, you know Beckham bringing an MLS team to Miami and all the the issues that he had uh, trying to secure land to build a stadium there he had all these different places picked out and you know it it ran into different issues and, and and different hurdles you know both the opposition from local residents and from city council and uh, you know just all the you know the the, the bureaucratic hoops so okay. Eventually, he found a site and, and a situation that worked for everyone, which is the way that it should be. So, the uh, long story short is that I think that this race in Miami will happen. Obviously, there there are bigger issues at play right now in terms of the uh, the, the the pandemic, but uh, I, I think it will happen at some point. But I think it's just going to take a while before it's all sorted out and uh, they, they get it to, you know to a point where they can you know they find a situation that works for everyone rather than you know having people that live to next. Uh, I was going to say Pro Player Stadium, but I guess the the, the totally. Dolphins Stadium. Is- Hard rock, hard rock hard rock, rock hard, hard rock yeah. I'm, i guess I'm it's, it's like... had
0: so many joe robbie stadium yeah. um pro player yeah it's, it's had many many names so <laughs> so you, no blame and the one thing i would encourage people to do is if you want to get a better sense of and I, i'm really glad you brought this up but if you want to get a better sense of the local opposition to racing not only downtown but at the miami gardens location is take a look at where the proposed track is and look at it in proximity to residential detached housing in the neighborhood. We're talking in some cases, a hundred feet from somebody's home. Like what they're proposing is, I don't want to suggest it's outrageous, um, but I think it's going to be very, very challenging them for them to put that race where they want to put it, especially when you consider the fact that anyone who flies in for this race will be downtown, they'll be staying downtown, they'll be eating downtown, they'll be shopping downtown, and really, they'll only be funneling out to the Miami Gardens area for the race. But take a look on Google. It's pretty interesting, and you'll get a sense pretty quickly of why it's going to be challenging for those race organizers to make that race happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, time for a break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, and mark time for more speculation now as we try to uh, <laughs> it's try to best. Yeah. <laughs> well, also try to run the clock and stretch it out. Hopefully, something breaking pops up on our monitors here as we uh, we uh, go through I'm the refreshing. show. Here. <laughs> yeah. Keep hitting the refresh uh, button. Uh, but one of the other things is um, Red Bull is uh, set to make a major announcement uh, today on Friday, and I, I think uh, we we can pretty much read between the lines uh, here what it's going to be, and uh, you know if there's any smoke or any fire that smoke is, it's a confirmation of Sergio Perez as the second Red Bull driver for next year. So the big question will be, well, how long is the term of contract going to be? He had hinted uh, before the season uh, was over that he had plans in place for 2022. So does this mean he's going to get a one-off deal with uh, with the Red Bull for 2021? Or does it maybe mean uh, that he's got uh, another drive lined up for 2022? Who knows? Uh, perhaps uh, maybe it's something like a one-year plan an option so we'll, we'll we'll find out uh but when we wake up to tomorrow morning check our phones before you know your our feet even hit the floor to find out uh, what what the story is but uh, th- th- this seems to be a pretty much uh I don't want to see the worst kept uh, secret in Formula One, but it certainly seems like uh, pretty much a foregone conclusion. I mean, uh, they, they were saying earlier this week that uh, Albon's future would be decided before Christmas. And then, you know, the news uh, coming down on Thursday about uh, you know this uh, press conference or this announcement that they got scheduled for Friday morning. It's kind of like, you know, read between the lines, do your homework, you know, check some of the things that are being said by some of the F1 journos out there that you, you can kind of uh, reach your own conclusion on this one.
0: Yeah, I think the the biggest takeaway for me, and and for some reason, despite the fact that you and I have been talking and speculating about this move for forever, is I yep. never really considered what the contract length, the, what the term could look like. Um, and it was only today when I was kind of reading some of those bre- breaking news articles that I saw that the speculation is that it's going to be a, a one year deal. And again, we don't know. Well, you know, tomorrow morning when I'm blurry eyed scrolling through <laughs> Instagram at seven in the morning, then I'll, I'll I'll be able to start processing what it actually was. But you know, I. I I think that's pretty interesting for a driver of his age. And to your point, like maybe he has something on the back burner for 2022. Um, But uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting that this is a, a one-year deal, like he has very little security in this situation, and mm-hmm. you could argue that he's going to have the opportunity in the second-best car on the grid, and I, I don't think you could really dispute that's the case given where Ferrari is currently. Um, but yeah, one year doesn't provide a, a lot of security, and it doesn't provide him with a great deal of opportunity to get to know the car, his engineers, um, the mechanics, um, the team, and the strategists. So hopefully, he can a- adapt quickly because my my sense is that if he doesn't do well and yuki has a really great year at i keep saying toro Rosso, but alfa tori that you know he could be on the hot seat as well and it's just it's this constant churn of drivers on the top tier at red bull but obviously i hope he does well i just I hope he's got a backup plan for 2022 if he's going to sign up to a one-year
1: term. Yeah, you know it's funny because when I've sort of been churning this one over in my head the last uh, day or so, I was just sort of thinking, okay, well, let's uh, let's say that uh, Perez gets uh, the seat now, and then you know Albon is out uh, for sure. And then you kind of look at the list of drivers that they've kind of uh, gone through in the past uh, couple of years. Because I don't want to suggest that uh, Ricardo leaving was acrimonious or anything, but that obviously that relationship that uh, expired, he felt, uh, you know, I've regardless if it was sort of overtly feeling pushed out the door, it didn't really feel like that way. Or, but he must have, uh, you know, obviously felt uh, that the direction that that the team was going was going to be Max Verstappen-centered, right? So he could see the writing on the wall. So then you kind of start this uh, rotating door now, this revolving door with Gasly, Albon, maybe now Perez. And you know, honestly, you know, if, uh, well, I mean, you can even throw Danny Kvyat into that mix too, if you want to go back to, to, to 2016. So, I mean, now you kind of look, uh, at the at this um you know th- this broader Red Bull picture with uh, you know the, the 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 big team Red Bull Racing and then Alpha Tauri slash uh, Taro Rosso that if you're a young driver in that Red Bull Academy you you got to be thinking okay well if I'm coming into Alpha Tauri or something like that you, you got to think okay well it's great to be in Formula One you know if I can play my cards right you know maybe I can get a shot with the big team but I'm kind of thinking now is it is is that really it's maybe not the situation you want to be in because I think they're sort of establishing themselves a, a bit of a reputation now or a bit of a, yeah I don't I'm not even sure what the uh, if reputation is the right word but I think you know what I'm trying to get at they're sort of uh, you know th- th- with all the different changes that they've made there I don't know if that's that sort of real pipeline to Formula One superstardom coming up through their academy through Alpha AlphaTauri to Red Bull doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end up in good things unless you have the prodigious talent of Max Verstappen. Yeah, I think you used the correct word. I think reputation
0: is probably the appropriate sense. To be fair, they're earning the reputation because people like you and me and the media journalists like to talk about these things. But, you know, if I'm a young driver and I'm being recruited by an academy, whether it's the Ferrari Academy or the Mercedes Academy or the Red Bull Academy, I just need to look at the way that they've treated some of their younger drivers over the last couple of years. You you know, you look at the trials and tribulations of Kvyat, the fact that he was on the senior team, demoted, bounced out of the organization, mm-hmm. brought back, bounced out of the organization, and you look at that the Albon saga and even though they gave him an entire calendar year, or a calendar year and a half, like there's no question that he wasn't being nurtured the way that maybe a young driver should have and you can look at the experience that Gasly had, which is he got half a year at the big team before <laughs> being demoted. Like it I think it's I think it would be challenging for them to recruit and retain young talent now simply because this is a team that was well known for many years for being really driven i don't i hate to use that as a pun but they were really driven by developing talent internally rather than depending on the mm-hmm. open market to recruit and sign established racers and and obviously they were able to do that because they were able to develop drivers like sebastian vettel and they were able to d- develop drivers like daniel ricardo and max verstappen but now all of a sudden they're gravitating away from that philosophy by bringing in a driver like sergio Perez, and they clearly mishandled a number of their young drivers over the last four or five years and even when you look at daniel ricardo at, at the end of the day That was a relationship issue, and I don't know that it was salvageable, but they also created the environment that allowed it to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So you even when you develop a really great, mature, charismatic driver, they weren't able to keep him. And, and I got the sense, you know, Daniel Ricardo's done some really great interviews recently where he talked about when he called Christian Horner and said, Hey, you know what? So I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to go to Renault. And Christian Horner laughed because he thought he was joking, but it also speaks to how disconnected the senior leadership within that organization was from where Daniel Ricardo was mentally. So I, I think you're right to kind of just put a bow on this. I think they're developing a very real reputation amongst young drivers for
1: sure. Do you think uh, maybe that uh, this possibly sets up in the future some sort of Jerry Springer type uh, talk show where <laughs> former Red oh, Bull drivers like, confront Christian Horner? You know, flying chairs and, uh, you know, swearing and all the nine uh, whole nine yards. You, you
0: could literally have Kvyat and Ricardo and Gasly and Albon sitting on a stage talking, I was going to swear, talking the S word about Horner and Marco. And then like, guess what? And a door swings open <laughs> yeah, exactly. and they walk out onto the stage. Oh, it's, it could Jerry. be so good. Jerry, I can yeah, see it exactly.
1: right now. This would be great. To, you know, if if they want to go down the reality TV path with the Drive to oh, Survive, which drama. is fantastic, they, they got to do the Jerry Springer one as well. I totally agree. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's try and uh, pull this one back on <laughs> on track here. So uh, the the other thing is uh, interesting that uh, that uh, may play out over the next uh, week or so before Christmas is uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, perhaps could end up uh, with a, with a new uh, uh, comment or sorry, a new contract uh, because he did comment uh, earlier this week that uh, that he wanted to get a new con- contract done before uh, from before christmas um, anyways he had um you know, there there have been a couple of things out there on social media. You know, he's he's planning to be at Mercedes uh, next year. He says he wants to be there, and uh, you know, so he's really hinting at it. Uh, you know, quite uh, quite overtly that uh, that that things are in the work. And you have to remember the last time that these guys sat down to get a contract uh, hammered out, it took like less than a day, and then they ordered a pizza at the end. So, you know, which seems like a very unformula one kind vegan of thing. Pizza, to, to yeah. be clear, yeah, it was, yeah. Vegan <laughs> <pizza>. <laughs> was it? it was vegan pizza. Well there yeah. you go that, but uh, I couldn't really see them going to Domino's or pizza hut or something exactly. like that. But exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, certainly, I, I think that uh, th- this is a relationship that has worked fantastically well. I mean, when you rewrite the record books in, you know, basically every single category that you can think of both as a, a driver and a manufacturer, if both parties are both keen to continue the desires there, why would you not just from that point of view want to do it? And I mean, um, I've, I've said it so many times and we, we talked about it probably even last week that that lewis is now at that uh, that point that he can walk away from formula 1 on his own terms whenever he wants but at that time you know obviously it's it's his right you know, to you to to stay here and uh, you know as long as he's happy to be there and he's still a competitive driver you know why would you not want lewis hamilton in your in your team and i think that's that, that that's a no brainer because of course if uh, you know they were not to uh, you know renew that deal would they replace them with i mean i know george russell's somewhere putting his hand up saying uh, you know i'm available but still this one i i I, for me this just seems like such uh again i don't want to say it's a completely a foregone conclusion but it just seems uh, like it's it's just going to be a matter of time before this uh, announcement comes out uh, that uh, that they got a new deal between them and again i think the big question on this one is uh, how long and how much you know, I, I think one of the
0: things that typically comes up at a point like this is you reflect back on the last six or seven years, and you talk about the fact that he's a seven times world champion and he's won seven drivers' titles with Mercedes. And then people tend to speculate and hypothesize well, you know what? Anyone could have won those titles in that car, and and I'll, I'll be honest, like I, I feel that if you put a, another talented driver in that seat in 2013, that it's possible they may have won a couple of titles, and, and you know we saw Nico Rosberg win a title in this car, but I think ultimately Hamilton just won all of them. Like he, I, I he, he's in indefensively the best driver in the sport now and again formula one's just so unique when you compare it to other sports because of the dynamic of the car and the team and the engineers and all those kind of pieces. But my sense is, you know what? I I still believe other drivers would have won titles in that car. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone else was winning six. I don't think anyone else would have had the domination that Hamilton had. I don't think anyone would have been reliable as Hamilton. And you just think about Hamilton as a package, right? And I, I get criticized for this all the time. Like, Oh, he's, you just call him the goat and you don't look at his flaws and you don't look at his deficiencies. But I'm like, if you look at the last six or seven years, what have his flaws been? He's won six titles. He was points away from winning the seventh. Like and he, he's he never steps a foot wrong off the track. He's charismatic. He's a total pro when it comes to dealing with the media and when it comes to dealing with fans. He is a, a total pro. And the other thing is, from a marketing perspective, he is he's the only truly transcendent personality and driver in the sport. He's the only one that is bigger than Formula 1 and can be recognized beyond the track. And I think that's important in North America because you and I are really insulated. You know, the the casual casual sports fan probably has no understanding of Formula. They might know Lewis's name, they mm-hmm. might know Michael Schumacher's name, but they won't know anything more than that. But that's impressive because he penetrates popular culture in a way that no other drivers do. So when you when you couple all of that together. Like he's a pro, he's charismatic, he wins, he doesn't make mistakes. He never foot steps of puts a foot wrong off the track. Like it's a no brainer. And, and I think for Mercedes as well with an organization as big and rich as that one, like I think to your point, it's going to be a quick conversation. It's like, Hey, what's it going to take? What's a fair amount. And I think at some point too, I think it's going to be, it's going to go beyond simply his salary as a driver, but that if he's going to continue on in this relationship with Mercedes, I I think the conversation contractually steers towards other things. Mm -hmm. And it's either stock it's, it's partnership in long-term marketing campaigns, it's involvement in design. Like I, I think his, his future with this organization is probably going to be pretty rich, um, yeah. both financially, but just in terms of his involvement with Mercedes as a whole. But honestly, what, what have they got to lose? This guy's won you six titles, almost seven titles. He's won you seven constructors' titles. Never steps a foot wrong. He's a transcendent superstar. Open the checkbook and pam.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a number of uh, really great points that you bring up there. I mean, uh, if they made Nico Rosberg an ambassador for Mercedes, what are they going to make Lewis Hamilton when he decides to call it a career, right? Exactly. I I mean, (laughs) ambassador to me just doesn't cut it for a guy that's uh, done uh, what what he's done for that uh, that team and that organization. But also, I think what's interesting, you mentioned it too, that one of the things that has made him so good since 2014, and, and his entire career for that matter, is just his consistency. I mean, I... I totally agree on the point that um, when uh, what you know, if you put another uh, driver in that car, they might win a championship or a couple of championships, but they're probably not going to win six. And you know, and we, we've talked talked about it quite a bit uh, recently. Just the the the, the discrepancy. Between Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas, if Bottas was more consistent between you know the, the the green light and the checkered flag at the end of the year, he's closer to Hamilton in terms of Hamilton versus Rosberg than he would be you know just basically hanging on by tooth and nail to stay ahead of Max Verstappen in the drivers' championship. I mean, not to take away anything from Max, I mean just to be in that conversation by the time we got to Abu Dhabi, you know, in light of the fact he had five DNFs this year and had a real rough patch there during the middle of the summer, I think is you know says a lot about the season that Max Verstappen had, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the consistency that that Lewis has is one of the things that uh, that that really impresses me. I mean, there's a lot of uh, different things that uh, impress me about Lewis Hamilton, but it's just the fact that whenever he needs to put that hot lap down, or or he it, it never seems to, to to fail. I mean, if, when it when push comes to shove. There's, I mean he's money you can always bank on Lewis to do what he needs uh, to do, but I don't know if you saw did you see that picture of him uh, i don't know I can't remember now if it was on Twitter or Instagram he might have double posted it uh it was something uh he kind of, with with the uh, with the bedhead obviously he's uh you know <laughs> not looking as neat and tidy as usually He kind of was like uh you know rocking the fro. I was just kind of thinking, well, hey you know if you don't have to do anything you're on holiday right now it's like if you got it flaunted it. <laughs> yeah totally yeah totally yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah, so the next one uh, that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, uh, Valtteri Bottas, you know, just to sort of like, uh, just sort of, uh, just sort of grow on what we were just uh, talking about here, says that uh, finishing second in the uh, the, the Formula One uh, Drivers Championship can't be all that satisfying. We'll talk about that uh, in a moment uh, after we take another break here on the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One, so don't go away. All right, well, we're back, and Mark, just before the break here, we were talking about, uh, well, we were talking about Lewis Hamilton for quite a bit, and then we were just uh, started uh, just started to uh, uh, broach the subject about Valtteri Bottas, who said that it can't be satisfying to be second runner-up in the, uh, the, the the Drivers' uh, Championship. I mean, he was only, what was he, like 9, 10 points ahead of uh, Max by, by the time the, the, the season was uh, done. Anyways, uh, Valtteri had the vol- following to say, quote, as a driver, when you're in the best uh, team overall this season, being second can't be that satisfying. But it's something to be able to contribute to the team this season, getting us the fourth Constructors title for me and the team and seventh in a row for us. It's better than being third, for sure. I guess I will get a small trophy to take home next week at the FAA Prize-Giving. I'm sure when I'm old and grey, I can look back and say, yeah, I was second, but hopefully I'll get a bigger trophy one day. That's kind of an interesting uh, one, don't you think? Uh, (laughs) It it, it seems almost a... I don't want to say... a defeatist quote, but it seems somebody that almost seems resigned and, and, and kind of very uh maybe may very aware of where he really sits in the uh in, in the pecking order. I think he, he's very cognizant now of where where he fits into the big picture. It's
0: maybe shocking that it took this long, but it's it's funny. When I was reading those quotes, I thought the exact same thing, like, oh, this is re he sounds very defeated. And 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 I think the challenge is this isn't the first time I've heard these quotes coming out of Valtteri Bottas. Like Mm -hmm. it's been pretty consistent for the past, not even the past couple of months, but you you, you get to a point during each season where he starts to emote like this. And and I appreciate the honesty and I, I appreciate the transparency, but I don't know if it's necessarily good because it creates an opportunity for you and me to talk about things like this and for other podcasts and other journalists to kind of write these stories, you know, That said, though, like, I I wonder too. Like, I, I try to put myself in that psychological state of mind where you're part of a team, but you're always second fiddle. Like there's always this one person that's winning and winning. And so like you're working in an office, you know what this other guy, he's always executing these awesome projects that, that your coworkers are rushing around and high-fiving him and you're doing good work, but you're not getting recognized and that your, your coworker then submits a bid for a big contract and he wins the contract and everyone celebrates and they're high-fiving him and you're, you're still doing good work. And like, I just, I wonder how long, like for me personally, that's probably not something I could do forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And for him, I just wonder, like, what is his psychological state? But then you read these quotes and, like, it's pretty clear what his psychological state is. He's feeling pretty beaten up. But at the same time, how much of that is self-inflicted when, you know what, your teammates wins 11 races this year and you win two in the same car, if if you know what I mean? And, again, it's a good partnership because it's delivered – how many constructors titles since he's been there 17, 18, 19, 24 for um, yeah. it's good because he's really great at defending Lewis and giving Lewis the opportunity to win. But it's alarming that he's emoting so publicly about this thing that we would probably all speculate about if he wasn't saying it. And again, I, I don't know what the, what I don't know what his solution is. It's either you become a better racer and you start competing with Hamilton, which you haven't shown the willingness or capability to do over the last three years, or you change your situation and if you change your situation, you're not going to be in a championship contending car. So it's tough. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, too. Like, you read these comments. They're very defeatist. They're, he's emoting pretty publicly. Like, what, like how does that resonate with you as kind of a member of the media and, and a fan? Like, where does that take you in terms of your perception of Bottas?
1: Well, it certainly is very interesting because, like you say, I mean, we've heard him say things like this uh, before, especially like after the 2018 season, which was a bit of a rough one for him. I mean, he came back last year, was fired up when uh, the the first race uh, right out of the gate in Australia. But I, I'm kind of wondering, this seems to me to have like a little bit of a different tone to it. I mean, it, the, the content totally. is similar, but... Uh, when you see you know what, what what George Russell came in, and I know it 's only one race it was only one weekend at uh, Bahrain Two for that Sakir Grand Prix, but I mean George came in, in into a car that uh, he wasn 't familiar in he didn 't fit into you know i mean there was so, <laughs> and he went out there right from the f p one all the way through that race, and if it wasn 't for a couple of things that were completely beyond his control. George Russell was absolutely a lock for the podium and had a legit shot yeah. to win that race. And 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 that's the problem I think that maybe uh, Valtteri Bottas is, is is facing now and perhaps if we didn't have COVID, if if Lewis hadn't gotten sick and he hadn't missed that race cuz he'd never risked a uh, missed a race before this, you know, th- this season for any reason, that this wouldn't have been a conversation that we were even having 3 weeks or a month ago, but this is where we are at right now and and I think that uh, you know some of this is getting kind of real for Voltaire and he's he's maybe kind of uh, asking some of these uh, hard questions uh, to himself and I think maybe he's starting to realize it a little bit that uh, you know it, it's one thing cuz I mean all these elite athletes they have this similar mindset you know if I just go out and compete if I train hard if I you know yeah. follow my nutrition and all these things I need to do I can go out there and perform at my best I can do what I need to do and he obviously left a lot of points out on the track uh, the, the, this season now is that, uh, you know, some of it's going to be his fault. Some of it's going to be, uh, you know, for for issues that are on the car and, you know, the occasional thing that are, you know, that uh, just happens. Uh, you know, it might be a mechanical issue or, you know, somebody drives into you. Uh, I, I mean, there's a, a lot of different things that uh, can happen. But I think for me, the, the, the big difference between Bottas and Hamilton was really highlighted in that Turkish Grand Prix. I mean, they're driving the identical car. I know he had a, a bit of floor damage, but still i mean uh, did, i can 't remember did Lewis actually lap him in that race, or did he yeah. get close he did yeah that 's what I thought, and I thought well you know if you 're in the same car and you know you, you, you're sort of in that uh, sort of mindset that I, I I should be challenging my my teammate for the world championship, even though that was the race that he kind of uh, sewed it up. That, you know, th- that was really highlighted uh, by that. But it's interesting, too, not just this quote, but some of the quotes that we've seen that, uh, you know, just even recently when he said even before uh, Sakir, that he said, well, it won't look great for me if George Russell comes in and, and does better than me this weekend. And, you know, he'd made sort of some similar uh, comments, uh, you know, just highlighting that, uh, you know, that whole Turkish Grand Prix and that whole situation, which uh, I think his car exchanged, uh, you know, driving direction, <laughs> was it six or seven times he spun out in that race? So there's a, there, there's a lot of things. And, you know, and again, we, we talked about it last week or the week before, just this, this rolling one year contract that he's had at Mercedes since 2017. And, uh, you know, with, with a hot young prospect uh, who's already in the Mercedes uh, system, like George Russell gosh you know it's uh, if i was valtteri you know I, I i don't think it would be a bad idea to have my agents starting to look around for for options for 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 2022 who knows what's going to happen with george i mean he's obviously going to be at mercedes or sorry at uh, williams next year that wasn't a slip because i know something here. <laughs> george obviously at Mer- uh, williams next year mercedes has confirmed uh, valtteri for another contract uh, for for next year but it really makes a uh, you know next year's silly season uh, you know really something to to, to speculate and talk about yeah, I agree. I, I think the one thing he isn't helping
0: himself with, he's not doing himself any favors by sharing these quotes. No. This this isn't helpful. You you are a world class Formula One racer in the best car in a historically good car like it, it doesn't reflect well on you from a, a, an emotional and a psychological perspective and, and i think ultimately this probably resonates into the team a little bit where if you're the mechanic and the engineer is working on his car and you're reading these quotes like where's his state of mind has, has he quit? has mm-hmm. he given up and then I, I think it's also pretty clear that formula one probably more than a lot of uh, team sports is is a very very mental sport when you're on the track you know what you're confined to that cockpit you're fighting the elements you're fighting the heat so much of what's happening around you is mental and it's kind of it's it's decision-making that has to be made in a nanosecond. And if you don't have the right state of mind, you're going to make mistakes on the track. And, you know, a single mistake can cost you a race. Like this, it doesn't look good. And if I'm his publicist, and I don't know that he has one, but if I'm his agent, for sure, I'm going to get in his ear about this because ultimately, you know, if if you don't have a, a long runway with Mercedes, you're limiting your options with other teams with these kind yeah. of quotes. You know what? You celebrate your team's success. You know, I want to do more. I want to do better. I'm going to work hard in the office. Off season, All that, I hate to say that, but that cliche, quote unquote, hockey talk, like just spoon feed the media. Don't give them this kind of, this kind of fodder to dig their teeth into and talk about. It's, it's not becoming, and it's not helpful for your career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of thinking that, uh, you know, if he just sort of keeps his mouth shut, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's going to be something that, you know, it's going to make total wolf point want to push him out the, 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 the door. But certainly, like you say, I mean, if you're one of the guys working on his car, you know, you, you're in the garage there, it kind of makes you wonder where, you know, where is he, you know, yeah. he is mentally, right? But, uh, I mean, as long as he doesn't drive into Lewis Hamilton, you know, or you get into like, uh, you know, something you know, like we saw Nico Rosberg do, uh, you know, a couple of times, several times, then uh, I, I mean, he's still that that ideal teammate because, I mean, he's a known quantity within the team. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, and, and that's what Toto and and, and the team are going to love him for because he's, he's going to win some races, which, you know, makes him feel good, but he's going to help uh, score all those important uh, points in the championship, in the constructors, and, ex- you know, extend and you know, I just kind of wondering, uh, you know, how would they, how would they, uh, you know, the, the, the inventive hashtags that they use for every championship. Mm-hmm. What would they use for eight? But uh, you know, maybe we can talk about this th- this totally. time next year. But yeah, fascinating to um, uh, to watch. Now, just talking a little bit now further down the grid. Well, one, one spot down the grid. So uh, Red Bull is saying that, uh, that the possibility of having an engine freeze is making them more hopeful that they can work some sort of deal to uh, keep, um, you know keep the Honda engines after next year and take that over and develop them uh, themselves. Now we haven't really talked about this uh, too much, but uh, I think this would be a really good thing for formula one is as bad as it is, or negative it is that, that that Honda's pulling out, and I completely understand their reasons for doing so. I like the idea of a team like Red Bull uh, being able to, you know, become like a, a pure manufacturer in the sense that they're they're developing and designing, building cars, but also engines. But having said that, I know that's a a very massive uh, commitment both in terms of design and manufacture and financials. It, it, it's a big uh, commitment. And I know that uh, there, there have been some quotes uh, coming up from some of their rival teams that haven't been overly warm or friendly towards the idea of the, uh, the engine freeze, but uh, perhaps that's, uh, that's softening now. But I, I think this would be a good thing. I, I would hope that uh, something can be reached and that when Honda is gone after next year, that, uh, you know, they just don't turn off the lights in the factory and the design shop and, you know, just lock it up and then put all the stuff out in the, the recycling bin. And that's it. Right. Yeah. The, the good
0: news in this case is is ultimately that, that the heavy lifting is done. And I, I don't want to sound too cliche, but I, I think one of the reasons that we haven't seen uh, manufacturers like Volkswagen or the, the Porsche Group or possibly a, a Ford or a Chevy or some of these other manufacturers enter Formula One is the upfront sunk cost of developing one of these highly complex engines is absurdly expensive and I I think if not for the fact that Honda has done the groundwork in developing this platform and obviously they were able to refine it over a number of years with McLaren and then they were really able to polish it off with their last couple of seasons with Red Bull slash Alpha Tori I I don't think they would be in a position to do this so I think what ultimately they want to be able to do is they want to be able to take over the IP take over the manufacturer of the engine um, and just kind of continue on the progression uh, that they're already on. That the challenge is it's it's not economically viable for them to do that if the sport was to tear up the engine regulations in four or five years and start over again. Like I think they I think they and a lot of teams want to understand that hey, you know what, we're going to have a fairly static um, engine formula for X number of years because ultimately the most expensive component of these highly complex and extraordinarily expensive cars is the is the power unit. Um, but that again, and, you know, I spent way too much time on Reddit and, and you start to go down that that Reddit rabbit hole. But I think ultimately this, this engine probably does have that four or five year runway. We'll see it through 2026. 20, um, after that, I think there's all kinds of questions because I think we start getting and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think we start getting into a point where globally we start inching towards this point where individual nation states have all but outlawed or prohibited the sale of internal combustion engines in road cars and then all of a sudden you have this championship racing series that is effectively using antiquated technology and I know the sport has all sorts of energy around biofuels and things like that but but I think for the next 4 or 5 years obviously it makes sense if they can get that IP from Honda and of course there's all sorts of speculation that by bringing Yuki into the AlphaTauri team obviously they're doing the the Honda team a uh, uh, kind of a solid, but I think Yuki's a, a reasonably good driver. Probably deserves that seat anyways. But but yeah, it's a, it's a fairly complicated situation overall, and something we could probably spend a couple of hours talking about.
1: There we go. Uh, Off season special number one is already, uh, <laughs> it's already decided itself. Yeah, but uh, joking aside, it uh, it would really be cool, and uh, you know, and it, it is amazing just um, how long it took a Honda to really get uh, up to speed. You know, to, uh, <laughs> to to use a bit of a pun there, because I mean, it, it they were behind the design curve uh, compared to where everybody else was when they came in with with McLaren. We all knew that there there was going to be a time before they really got their act together. Or really figured it out and and got those engines to a competitive uh, place, but uh, th- th- those were some pretty dire years. And I, I have to give you know a-, a lot of props to you know to-, to Formula One for managing to convince Honda to stay in Formula One because McLaren, remember, they bought uh, themselves out of that deal the cost what was a hundred million dollars or hundred yeah. million pounds or whatever wh- whatever it was the first window of opportunity that they had. They took it and then they they, they moved over to Renault, which has been a good stopgap for them. I mean, they've been a little bit more excuse me, uh, competitive. They've gotten a little bit better each and every year. And that team is going to be one to uh, to watch uh, going forward. But, you know, having said that, uh, it, it's it, it's disappointing to see Honda pulling out at this point. And uh, I, I guess the big question is, and, and you, you just hinted at it, is is long-term, is what are the new engine specs going to be like in 2026? And then how long are those going to stay in effect for? And it really sounds like that they're going to try... And extend and perpetuate, uh, you know, th- this in some form or another. Like you say, yeah. they got all these exotic biofuels yeah. and things like that. And ultimately that's uh, I think going to have a lot to, to, to do with it and I, th- I think eventually whether they like it or not they might be forced into electrification and maybe what they're just doing in the meantime maybe they've realized that internally and they're just trying to maybe prolong that move as long as possible to the point where electric power and, and, and electric uh, cars could be a lot closer to what we see right now with the you know in, in Formula One without regressing too far back so who knows who knows the, the one the one thing I'll
0: add on that is Well, is we we talk about how disappointing it is that Honda is departing the sport. By all accounts, uh, within the board at Honda in Japan, this was a a highly contentious issue. Um, And it ultimately took a senior executive casting the deciding vote. To decide that it was the right time to leave Formula One, like this was never a foregone conclusion, and I think that was a company that was deeply divided over whether they should leave. And, and you're right, like don't don't forget, it was only a decade ago that Honda had a factory works team, and they they left the sport at, at the height of the the global economic crisis, and and it's something of a surprise twist move, they came back four or five years later, but they came back purely as a, a power unit supplier. Um, but the engine formula was vastly different than what they were conditioned to with their Milton Keynes-based organization a couple of years prior. I'm not Milton Keynes, Brackley-based organization a couple of years prior. Um, But I'm really happy to see where they are now. And and it's sad that they're leaving, but I think purely from a business perspective, it doesn't really make sense for them. You know, They're not the works team. They're not the banner team. They're just the engine supplier, and they're never going to get that top billing that they would as a works team. But at the same time, you're talking about an upfront startup cost of a billion dollars to, to build your factories and do that. And again, for a sport that's changing and it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's sad to see them go because they have so much positive history, yeah. but at least in a sense, they're going out on top. You know what I mean? They've got a competitive formula. Once again, they're winning races. They won the most recent race in, in Abu Dhabi. So it, at least they can leave on top in a sense.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun next year to see what, uh, what what they can do with Red Bull on that final season. And uh, you know, if they have a good year, then uh, uh, Red Bull obviously have a lot of uh, reasons to be uh, really optimistic uh, going into 2022 yeah, absolutely. If, they, you know, if there's the engine freeze and the new cars coming in, everything like that. Anyway, so uh, a time for one final break here on the show. And when we come back, we got a couple more interesting stories to talk about. And we're going to start with McLaren saying that third in the Constructors' Championship is about prestige and not money. So we'll talk about that. Um, the other side of the break so don't go away all right well welcome back to the show everybody and yeah we'll start to to wrap it up now before we dim the lights and go home here well actually uh, you know (laughs) there's nowhere else we can really go right now we we're all home we've been here for months we're all dying to get out uh well i I guess that's a bad uh, word to use considering the, uh, the situation we're eager to get out of our houses again and go and do uh, other things. Anyways, um, like I said before the break, um, Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren, said third of the Constructors' uh, Championship is more about prestige than any financial win or benefit that they got uh, from that. But come on, at the end of the day, uh, the, the payday still is a good thing to have. Yeah,
0: I, I I agree. And I think ultimately, you know what, two months from now, when no one will ever remember who was third in the championship, ultimately what they'll remember is that they were able to bank a certain amount of cash, which they desperately need to continue yep. developing these cars and things like that. And I get it. It's nice. Like, it's good for us to talk about the fact that, hey, they were third in the championship, but it took some really mitigating circumstances for them to be there, right? It took a 15-point penalty to racing points, and it also took a catastrophic horrendous year by a historically bad year for Ferrari like Ferrari hasn't been sixth in the championship with since what 1980 so there's some <laughs> mitigating circumstances that helped to elevate them there but ultimately I think Zach Brown's a likable guy and I think you and I talk so much about what he's done and what he's contributed and the fact that they were able to excel despite all of the financial pressures that they've been facing over the last couple of years and we talked even last episode about the fact that they've had to take out a big loan with a battery bank and they're they're leading into heavy investments from a US conglomerate and And they've had to sell the McLaren Technology Center just so they could lease it back. Like they've had to do some extreme things to say solvent. Um, So it's really nice to see that, hey, third in the championship. You know what? They can say whatever they want about it being um, kind of a mark of accomplishment. But at the end of the day, the single most important thing to them and their accountants is the cash that comes with that third place finish.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it is a, it's is—it's absolutely good validation for the work that Zach Brown has done over the past uh, several years, and also the work of the people that he's brought in to help run that team and, and keep it going and bring it back. Because you, you can almost feel, d- despite all the things that they've had to do, like you just mentioned, off the track, uh, just to, uh, you know, to, to, to keep the business solvent, uh, to keep the, the, the money flowing and all that sort of stuff that, that they need. But despite that, you can almost feel the morale radiating from the Formula One team. And I think that they're going into a really interesting place now, uh, going into, to 2021 because this uh, partnership with Renault is over. They're getting the Mercedes engines back. They're off, uh, you know, obviously a third place finish in the constructors, uh, championship. They're going to have a very good lineup of uh, drivers uh, next year with uh, Daniel Ricardo and Lando uh, Norris I think also um, a pretty good pair of uh, uh, marketing wise I think Carlos Sainz has done a, a very good job for McLaren over the past uh, couple of seasons as has uh, Lando Norris but I think that uh, it, you know that slowly but surely they've done some really uh, important things you know, both in terms of people both on the track and on the track off the track uh, sort of out of the car in the car if you want to call it that but also I think getting the Mercedes uh, power. Again is 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 really a a huge win for them, and it's going to be one of those teams that I'm going to be watching keenly next year. I mean, it's it's just been a a fascinating story to watch. A how bad they got so quickly. I mean, it's not all entirely they fault just because of the reasons we were talking about uh, before the break, just with the you know the just where they were with the the Honda power unit at the time, but also equally how almost. Equally quickly, they they've rebounded and come back to a, a place of uh, respectability. I mean, they they I mean, when it was dark, it was it was a really really dark place that they were in. But to their credit, they've turned it around uh, in fairly short order and in in not easy circumstances. Might I add? Yeah, one of the things that's really
0: remarkable about this as well is they they did the transition from the the Honda power unit to the Renault power unit, and that's not an easy transition, right? Like you you fundamentally build your car around the power unit. And if you swap power units, you effectively have to rebuild the entire car to accommodate the weight and the balance and the dynamics and all the different aspects of that power unit. So the fact that they were able to do that is remarkable. And it's it's also pretty well regarded amongst Formula One teams that Renault isn't a great partner. They will sell you an engine, but they're not going to give you much more than a crate on a pallet on your shipping dock. Whereas- <laughs> Mercedes, on the other hand, is typically very well regarded as a partner. Like, you know, you're going to buy engines and they're going to provide ongoing support and they're going to staff you with full-time engineers. They're going to give you ongoing support. They're going to take analytical data back and and give you feedback. Like, they're a very good partner. So I'm really excited to see what McLaren could potentially do with an even better power unit provider, let alone the power unit provider that keeps winning championships themselves. And, you know, looking at the driver's title championship here too, the one thing that really impresses me about McLaren is they've never, they've never looked for a shortcut when it comes to cash and drivers. They've never leaned into that concept of the pay driver. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They could have gone down the Nikita Mazapan path. Like we need cash badly. We're going to, we're going to compromise the integrity of our team and the quality of our drivers for that cash grab. They've, they've always done the right thing by choosing great drivers and they choose good young drivers and they drive they choose competent drivers that are well established with other teams and then even the fact that they that made that effort to go after daniel ricardo not necessarily knowing what their future was going to look like because when they brought ricardo over they weren't yet committed to mercedes and their their future path wasn't that clear but the fact that they're still willing to spend money to bring in top tier driving talent is is also a real mark of integrity for that team, because given where they've been financially, they they could have fallen into that Haas trap of signing somebody who's bringing cash but doesn't necessarily bring a great deal of marketability or charisma or integrity. But they they've just been doing everything the right way, if you know what I mean, from the top down. So I, I'm I'm happy to see the the successes they've been having.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's going to be fun to watch uh, next year. And I I really think that's going to be an interesting uh, driver pairing that they're going to have with uh, Norris and uh, Ricardo, two obviously uh, pretty good uh, drivers. And I think for me that uh, that Lando was uh, impressed uh, right from his very first uh, season in Formula One. For uh, for me though, I think the one race that really stood out for me was the 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 French Grand Prix in 2019 because remember he was hit with was it a hydraulic problem just with a couple of laps uh, left in the race and he struggled with the car and he still came home and and, and got a couple of points out of it and it would have been easy just to, um, you know, maybe just give up and retire the car, but you know, all credit to him. I mean, he he hung on and uh, he was able to to just to uh, you know claw his way, uh, or or just hang on just uh, by 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 tooth and nail just to, uh, to to get that car across the 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 finish line. And I think you know I, I'd been impressed with him uh, before that, but I think that was one of those moments when uh, you know at the French Grand Prix, I thought, okay, th- this guy's legit. And uh, I think for me, he's really sort of um I, I think he's gotten better and better all the time and. You know, uh, Carlos Sainz. You know, I, I think he's a decent driver, but I think that uh, what what they're losing in him going to Ferrari, I think what they're getting in um, in, in Ricardo is uh, just as equally a good driver, but also I think um, maybe more importantly for the PR people at uh, at uh, at McLaren is is a marketable guy, a guy that's got oh. uh, real charisma. I, I love Danny Ricardo. You know, he's he, you know, he, he's just uh, you know he's always got a big smile on his face. He's candid. You know, he, he just uh, he seems like a very down to earth. And, and, and regular kind of guy. I mean, when, when I see Danny Ricardo, I hear him talk. I'm like, I, I don't know what it is. It's just like a guy I feel like I can relate to for, for whatever reason. You, my goodness, you've absolutely nailed
0: it. I just, I can't, like the marketing team for McLaren must just be salivating. At the point, like Carlos Sainz, nice guy, good kid, gets along well with Lando. Um, He's, he's personable. He's okay in an interview. It's not necessarily marketable beyond that. Dan- Daniel Ricardo, both on the track and off the track, is just like a wet dream for a marketing team. <laughs> he's got he's got a grin from ear to ear and he's got jokes for days and he yep. loves being in the interview. He loves being the spotlight. Like he's just amazing. Like every time I see an interview or a podcast with Daniel Ricardo, I go out of my way to listen to it because one, you learn something new. He shares a lot of information. He comes from a great family. Like just from a, a marketability perspective, this is going to be a windfall for that team. For McLaren now to be able to go out and sell sponsorship, within that british market based on the fact that hey we're an up-and-coming capable team that finished third in the championship and we've got a, a past race winner daniel ricardo wow great great yeah. job to them great move
1: yeah yeah i mean they're, they're in a really good uh, pl- uh, place right now and not to mention that i think that uh, that papaya color that they have on their car that traditional mclaren color is one of the, the the most recognizable and one of the it's one of the best colors on the grid uh, right now as much as i love the silver of the mercedes and the scarlet of the ferraris you know that that papaya is looks uh, really 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 good too so that that's you know, yeah yeah they, they got a lot of good uh, things going for them really looking forward to seeing what they can do next year and uh, be on. And Mark, uh, just before we go here, there was a couple of uh, things that uh, were interesting. Um, well, first of all, we, we kind of glanced over this one uh, at the beginning of the show when we were talking about uh, races um, and uh, the, the schedule for next year. But this is something that uh, was out uh, a month or two ago. And I had a tweet from one of the listeners. I, I Pardon me, I forget who it was, but it was a Brazilian fellow who said even then that uh, that they were still talking about uh, a five-year deal for Sao Paulo at Interlagos. And um, you know the, the one thing that sort of comes up uh, repeatedly when I talk to people about that, that they seem very, uh, you know, positive about keeping it interlogos. But I've had a lot of negative uh, feedback about people, you know, from people, other fans that uh, have been very, let's just say, not enthusiastic about the prospect of building a new track at uh, at Rio de Janeiro, just because the amount of construction, the amount of things that they'd have to do, the amount of trees they'd have to cut down, the environmental impact. And so I I think this is a good one. You know, it's obviously not a modern track, but I really like Interlagos. I think it offers a lot. And I mean, there's been some memorable, memorable races there over the years. So I I think this is a win. I think this is a good one to, to have that race extended with a new deal for another five years. For for a country like Brazil that
0: suffered probably more than most developed or developing nations over the past 10 years from an, an economic perspective, it never made sense to me that they would front the capital to build a new track when they have a perfectly serviceable Formula One track already. Do, do you know what I mean? Like yep. it just, it never economically made sense to abandon Interlagos to move to another city and carve a new track out of the countryside. One, because the sport was getting a ton of blowback because they were going to intrude on some pretty sensitive ecological land to do it but two because this is a country that's facing some pretty serious economic headwinds and and i think we all saw the economic fallout of hosting the olympics and the fact Mm -hmm. that there was significant economic fallout of the fact that immediately following that they hosted the world cup And, and and ultimately this is a country that has misplaced its financial resources pretty significantly and i i just thought optically it seemed like a really poor decision and and i was really happy that we're staying at interlagos and you know if you have capital and you want to invest in interlagos and you want to improve that track both for the drivers and the spectators that's great but i think as a racing circuit it's very good like i i love the elevation changes um i, I love the layout I, I love everything about it from a, a driving perspective and you know what pretty consistently we see rain as well during that time of the year in that type part of the world so we get some pretty exciting wet races as well i just i never understood the impetus to move the one thing that i thought was very interesting and i think this is very much a veal dig at the politicians and the business people that were leading the charge to relocate the race is it's going to be renamed. It's no longer going to be the Brazilian Grand Prix, right? It's going to be the Grand Prix of Sao Paulo. So I I thought it was interesting that (laughs) not only does the rival city lose out on the opportunity to secure an F1 race, but the Brazilian Grand Prix is actually going to cement itself as the Grand Prix of Sao Paulo. So I thought that was all very, very interesting, but yeah, I totally agree. It never made sense to me and Interlagos is a grid track and if there's capital available, why not just reinvest it in this current track? The drivers love it.
1: Yeah, especially Max when it rains because that 20 what was it, 2016 Brazilian 2016. Grand Prix. Was, boy, was that an awesome race? I mean, Max, yeah. I mean, he was passing people in that race in the wets that people don't pass on when it is it, when it is dry. I yeah. mean, that that was yeah. amazing, but I guess that that, that is uh, Max Verstappen, but I kind of had to, to to chuckle here and I'm going to be a little bit uh, facetious because you know when, when they got some blowback about the uh, you know the ecological impact and the environmental damage of building this new new track. I kept uh, thinking to myself, is just like, you know, somewhere, somewhere in Formula One, there's a, you know, people are going through social media and they're like, oh, we're getting a lot of negative feedback on this whole uh, Rio de Janeiro uh, track and stuff like that. Like, oh yeah, well, let's just release this announcement of the, the, the new race in Saudi Arabia. That's, uh, here, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? So anyways, that, that's just uh, me being uh, facetious. But uh, anyways, just to, to close it up, uh, apparently uh, there's a new lighting system uh, out that could, uh, you know, extend or bring the opportunity to host more night races uh, for formula one, which I think is cool, but do we need more night races in formula one? What, what's your two cents on that one? Yes.
0: Yes. And, and principally because it means I don't have to get up at six in the morning to watch <laughs> a race that starts at two in the afternoon in, yeah. in uh, Western Europe. Um, so I think for selfish reasons, you know what, if they can push those races back to six or seven or eight o'clock and I can watch them at a reasonable time, hour time, that's good. But you know what? I still like date. You know what? I, I don't know how I feel about this. Maybe I don't really care, but I, I kind of like that the night races that we have, there's something special about yes. them. And because there aren't many of them, like Bahrain, it makes sense. It was originally a day race, it's now a night race. The track looks beautiful. The lights sparkling, the LED lights wrapped around the palm trees. It looks beautiful. Abu Dhabi is beautiful because it's kind of a dusk race that graduates into a night yep. race. Um, and then Singapore, as the first night race, is beautiful because you get to see the, the skyscrapers sparkling and Marina Bay sparkling. Like I like it because it's special. If yeah. if you know what I mean,
1: yeah, you know that that pretty much echoes my sentiments as well. Because I, I thought it that my 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 first reaction to it was okay. That's cool, but is that maybe too much of a good thing? And yeah. for, for those exact reasons, I mean, I like all those three races for the exact uh, reasons that, uh, that that you mentioned. And it's just like, could it be too much of, uh, you know, take away a little bit of the uniqueness of uh, of those. I mean, if you added one more, sure, why not? I mean, uh, but like you say, I mean, from a selfish uh, perspective, because I mean, a couple of weeks ago for the Sakir Grand Prix, I mean, we, we were watching that one here on the West Coast when we were having our breakfast on, uh, on Sunday morning. So from a timing point, it was uh, perfect. I mean, that's why races like Australia and Japan Like in those parts of the world, they work so good because those are races that, you know, we can, we can stay up because they either come on late in the evening or maybe in the early hours of the, uh, the, you know, what's technically morning, but it's it's doable because, you know, for a person like me, who's a bit of a night owl anyways, I can stay up and watch a race, even if it's after midnight. But for some strange reason, I can't drag my butt out of bed at 6 a.m., especially on a Sunday to get up and watch formula one. I mean, I can record it and on on the PVR and watch it a couple of hours later, but, uh, you know, the, the, you know, it, it takes a little bit away from, uh, you know, the, the, the experience of watching it live, but you know, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty much neutral on this one. Uh, I, I could maybe go for another race, a night race, but, uh, I uh, like. I think, uh, or like I said, I think that you could add too many to it, and that would uh, kind of take away a little bit of the, the the specialness of it, if that's even a word. But it's getting late here, and uh, you know, I, I've pretty much gotten to the end of what I wanted to talk about. So, if I'm making up words now, then hey, I'm just going to do it because it's been a long day. Anyways, shall we wrap it up there? I think that's a good place. So. We're, we're going to be, well, don't worry, we're not going anywhere. There'll still be a show coming out over the holidays. And until then, if you want to get in touch, please do so. We love the tweets, love the emails. So send us a tweet at scuderiaf one pod or email us at scuderiaf one pod at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. Happy holidays. Enjoy, in, enjoy the holiday time. And we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.